Welcome to the Influential Personal Brand Podcast. This is the place where you'll learn cutting-edge personal brand strategies from today's most recognizable influencers. We're going to teach you how to build a rock-solid reputation and then how to turn that reputation into revenue. I'm your lead host, Rory Vaden, co-founder of Brand Builders Group, Hall of Fame speaker, and New York Times bestselling author of Take the Stairs. How to become a number one New York Times bestselling author. What an interesting question and a perfect topic of conversation for a woman who has done that multiple times, Gretchen Rubin. That is who our guest is on today's show, which I think you are going to love. As always, we have the interview here, and then we will follow up with a uh, show release in a couple days, which will be the recap episode from myself and my wife and business partner, AJ, doing the debrief. But this is incredible. Like, how often can you sit down with somebody who was a number one New York Times bestseller and hear their secrets about what how bestseller lists work and what they do and what their strategies are and how they got started with somebody on Gretchen's level? So this is your chance to do that here and only here. So we're excited for you to get to talk to Gretchen and uh, listen to the interview. So you're going to love it. And we're so glad that you're here. We'll get started just after this message. Hi, it's AJ Vaden. And thanks for listening to the Influential Personal Brand Podcast. Did you know that the ideas we share on the show are things we actually specialize in helping you implement? If you want to raise your public profile and turn your reputation into revenue, please visit freecall.brandbuildersgroup.com to sign up for a free brand strategy call with one of our personal brand strategists. Again, that's freecall.brandbuildersgroup.com to sign up for your free call. Talk to you soon. I am excited to introduce you to Gretchen because I think that this is a pretty rare chance to get behind the scenes with one of the most prolific writers in the world. Gretchen Rubin, many of you probably know, I mean, the happiness project was like the major number one bestseller forever and ever. It still sells like crazy. She wrote happier at home. She wrote the four tendencies, which is when I think our paths crossed because we were kind of like into that self-discipline space. And that's how we met. And I have just adored her and admired her work. I think she's a fantastic writer, truly the consummate professional. And she has sold more than three and a half million books and her books are also in 30, more than 30 different languages. And so she is like, you know, really, now she's a speaker also, and she does other things. But really, I think her writing was the thing that broke her through Sheehan's wall. For those of you that follow us, you know, we talk about breaking through the wall. It was her writing that, that really did that. So I call, another personal favor I called in. And Gretchen, thank you so, so much for being here. I'm so happy to be talking to you. Thanks for having me on the show. We're making a little bit of a pivot with our personal our personal brand. You know, we're, we're still talking about discipline and, and, you know, those kinds of things. But we've shifted to really talking about reputation and studying what creates reputation. And so I'm interested just like off the cuff, what is your definition of reputation or what do you think of? Or like, do you have any personal philosophies about 
how you think of reputation that, uh, and, and how you've built, because you have such a huge reputation in like, uh, you know, the writing world and then also the speaking world. So I'm just kind of interested in like your random philosophies on the concept of reputation. Well, that's really an important question because reputation, like if you use reputation as a lay person, you think of it as kind of like your integrity or sort of like, you know, do you have an honorable reputation? But if you're using it in this context, it's a little bit more like your voice or like, why are people coming to you? You have a reputation for talking about certain things. And so for someone like me, I have a reputation for talking about what? I mean, that was sort of a big question, which is like, well, what is my subject? What, what do I write about? And yeah. I had to act at one time sort of think hard about like, okay, I wrote a book about Winston Churchill. And I wrote a book called Power, Money, Fame, Sex. And I wrote a book called The Happiness Project. Like, what, what am I talking about? I'm like, I write about human nature. That's what interesting me. That is my subject. And I think my reputation is I am somebody who writes and thinks and talks and engages with people about the subject of human nature. Now, I have to say, I had this very kind of striking conversation with someone who's super smart and has an outstanding reputation herself. And she said to me, oh, well, you can't say human nature is your subject. Like, that's too big. And at first I was like, Ooh, I guess I can't do it. And then I like, uh, like a week later, I'm like, who is she to tell me what I can and can't do? If I say that my subject is human nature, my subject is human nature. And indeed, my subject is human nature. So one of the things that I do as part of my reputation is I'm always thinking, is what I'm doing consistent with this reputation of what my interests are? And I'm also trying to show my idiosyncratic truth as Gretchen Rubin, an individual person walking around. So I'm obsessed with color. I live in New York City. I came from Kansas City, Missouri. I'm really close to my sister who lives in LA. I wear athleisure all the time. I drink a lot of Diet Coke. Like there's those things about me that are very particular. And then there's my subject. And so I'm always thinking like, am I putting that out into the world? Um, Because I do think that a certain kind of clarity helps people to engage with you and to feel like, well, if I'm interested in this or I'm in this kind of mood, this is the kind of person that I would turn to. And you have to sacrifice certain things like to have that kind of clarity because there's things that like maybe you'd be interested in talking about, but that just sort of, you know, you have to think like, is this going to kind of broaden and deepen my reputation or is this going to muddy and kind of divide my reputation? Not that you want to falsely limit yourself, but I I do think that a certain kind of coherence is helpful for an audience to engage. So did you, like human nature, that's really interesting because yeah, I, I see the intersection clearly now, but did you, it sounds like you kind of clarified that after. Yes. A couple books, and yeah, then yeah. After. after many books, I was like, "What's going? What like? What am I?" And then I wrote this weird book called Profane Waste, which is very strange, and it looks completely different from all my other books. Unless you say this is a person who really is studying human nature, then it makes perfect sense. And you're like, "Of course, this is like a very tiny spotlight on a, a very." kind of surprising and almost mysterious aspect of human nature. Mm. But that makes perfect sense that I would be interested in that. Do you think someone, cause this is, so this is one of the things we kind of help people do. We, so we call it finding their uniqueness and we're, yeah. we are often, we look both in their past for hints as well as to the future of who they feel yes. called to be. And kind of at the intersection, we go like, Hey, this is, this is sort of your uniqueness. Like how important is it to find that theme like that? And do you think people should try to know beforehand or do you think it's okay to kind of stumble down the road in your career and then you look back and you go, there's going to be some consistent through line and then you, and then you find it or would it, does it even matter that you found it? Do you think you could have just gone on without knowing human nature was the umbrella? 
Well, I think it's important in terms of presenting yourself because people will say like, what your books look so, look so weird and different from each other. How do you explain that? Or I, I think it does help you understand and kind of like almost algorithmically, like who am I like? Like if you if you go to publish a book, for example, they will say, okay, you're writing this book. What is the comp? Meaning what is the comparable book to the book that you're writing? And here's a hint. If you say there is no book like this, that's not good. Because what you're saying is this book is un so unlike any other book. We don't know where to put it in a bookstore. We don't even know how to think about it. And so you want to be thinking about like, well, who are my allies? Like one thing about social media is you really want to find the people who are interested in the same kinds of things you are and you want to support them and shine a spotlight on what they're doing. And then hopefully they become interested in you and turn to you and turn a spotlight to you. And then you're allies and you're engaged and you're, you're like part of a community that's interested in something. Whereas if, if, it, but it's kind of hard to know what that is. If it's kind of like the whole world, you know, it's like, am I writing about sports? Am I writing about foreign policy? It's like, you know, it's like, okay, well, I don't, I don't know how to think about you in an intellectual way, in an intellectual framework, in a world where I kind of have to know what I'm thinking about. Now, it's interesting, like, do you need to know before, after, whatever? So, I mean, in my case, I am a very productive person. So I have almost compulsively putting things out, I would say. And so I had a lot of stuff that I'd put out kind of before I, I even knew enough to be thinking about what I was doing, to ask the kind of questions that you're asking and talking about, frankly. And so then I could look back and sort of see like, well, the evidence told me something about myself that maybe I didn't have an insight into. Would it have been better to have a sense in, in advance? I don't know that I would have known in advance, but had I known in advance, that might've been very helpful. I really think mm -hmm. that in the end, the most important thing is that you're moving forward. If you're creating things like, look, mm -hmm. if something doesn't work, then that tells you something. I think sometimes people... They, they throw some spaghetti against the wall and they, and, they, and they get more and more interested in the spaghetti that sticks and they find that that's where they're growing an audience and that's where they're sensing excitement and growth. And then they go deeper and deeper in that direction. So I think if you kind of can't tell what it is, maybe you want to start creating. And often you might find, well, some things come much more easily or some things are kind of endlessly fascinating. When I started writing The Happiness Project, what I, I, I led, got led into it because I was like, this is vast. This is limitless. I could never come to the end of my fascination with this subject. And indeed, I never have come to the end of my fascination with this subject. But there's other things that, you know, you kind of run out of interest in. And so part of it, I think, is, you know, if you don't exactly know what it is, start putting stuff out there. And then you might also see that certain things get you much more engagement. If, if you're really finding that other people are very much more interested in your ideas about one thing than another, well, then that also will probably be really useful information. I love that concept of endlessly fascinating because that's a different answer for each person. But oh, hundred percent. But yeah. that is such a clue to your uniqueness and like what your, what your thing is. So, so let's talk about just like book sales. Cause you, you know, there's, there's like these different echelons of bestseller and you're like a real, real bestseller. How do you sell a lot of books? Like, what do you think, is it you got to have the big social media following in the platform? Do you have to have the big publisher? Is it all about what you're writing? Is it the way that you write? Is it writing for an audience of which there's a big target, you, you know, a number of people that fit that demographic or psychographic? Like, what do you think is the difference between the books that sell a lot and the ones that don't? You've mentioned so many things that are that are significant. And of course, for every book, it's kind of a little different story and a little different profile. I mean, one thing I would say, I say this, I remind myself of this, and I remind everybody I know who's a writer of this, there are many ways for a book to succeed. Hmm. And a book can be a wonderful success without 
getting anywhere near the bestseller list. And so mm-hmm. to kind of pin all your hopes and to feel like a book is a success or failure, depending on that metric, I think is very short-sighted. And also that is a metric that there's a lot of things that go into it that you can't control. It is not like a pure number. And so, you know, so it's a very important metric and I have to say, I think about it all the time. It's not the only thing. So if you get a lot of exciting speaking engagements, that's great. If you really deeply engage with a small group of people, but for whom your, your book is like massively interesting or exciting or groundbreaking, that works for you. If this becomes the platform or the springboard for another project that is going to end up being more important, or if it's, you know, novelists often talk about like the, the novel that's in the dust drawer is that sometimes you have to write something that's like completely doesn't succeed in order to set yourself up for the next success. So sometimes something that is just like a big failure is what you need to learn the lessons that you need for success. There's many ways for a book to succeed. That said, it is nice to hit the bestseller list. And I will say that it is very, very difficult for a self-published book to hit the bestseller list. That's just, there's many ways for a self-published book to succeed. They can make a ton of money. They can have a ton of readers. They can lead to book deals. I mean, like TV deals or movie deals. They can lead to regular, traditional book deals. There's like a, they can be tons of fun. You can go to conferences. It's just, it's just the bestseller list is not set up for that. And obviously some books are of more general interest than others. And I think you have to know, like I have a friend who is writing a book about transracial adoption. Now her book could have been wildly important, exciting, thought-provoking. She could have gotten excited, you know, become an expert, been invited to conferences. Is that going to be a bestseller? No, because there's just not enough people who are interested enough in transracial adoption. I mean, because it wasn't even like a memoir about like her profound story. It was like, it was very much kind of about the nuts and bolts of it. And so it wasn't even like, this is going to be an amazing memoir, like educated. Like this is what you need to know if you're about to embark on a transracial adoption. So that's a limited audience or, you know, or like you're writing a book about arthritis. I mean, probably it's going to be hard because how many people are interested in that? Now, there's always an exception to every rule. So I'm sure people are thinking like, oh, but what about this book? But in general, you want to be thinking about, is this a book that you could conceive of a lot of people reading it? Now, the good news is, is that if you know the actual numbers of books that you have to sell to hit the New York Times bestseller list, say, or it's tiny. You're like, how is it possible? I mean, if you sold 15,000 books in the first week, it would be huge. It would be enormous. You would almost certainly hit the list depending on what else was on the list. Because part of it is the list changes. The number of books you have to sell to get on the list depends on what the other books are and what list you're on, fiction, nonfiction, self-help, et cetera. It would be huge. And you're like, don't I even know 50,000 people in my own life? Like if everybody in my family and like one friend buys it, like, isn't that like a lot? It's like, no, it's not. It's and like, it's a, you're like, we live in a big country. How is it possible? It's really possible. So this is one of the reasons that you see so many writers these days pushing pre-orders because a pre-order means that you can push and push and push well in advance. And then every single book that's sold in the pre-order period hits that first week. It hits at one time. So for almost everyone, unless you're in an exceptional situation, which you can imagine what that would be, your first week is when you would have the best chance because that's when the pre-orders would land. So if I've had 100 people pre-order and then 15 people buy this week and 15 people buy it next week, well, I might hit the list this week because that's when I have the total number. And also, you know, it's the list is not cumulative. The list is like what's happening right now. And so you could sell 
over the long term be selling hundreds of thousands of copies, but kind of never get onto the list if it's just like this slow burn over the long term. Um, so part of it is kind of the weirdness of how the list is determined. The Amazon list is the same way. It's uh, acceleration, not absolute numbers. Yeah. And what would you say for, to help people understand this? The, you know, like you mentioned, 15,000 would be a big, you know, that would be a, a very big launch week. Beyond that, what do you have to sell every week typically to kind of land on the list, would you say? That's very, very hard to determine because there's a lot of secrecy. There's no, there's no transparency around the list. And also, as I said, it really depends on what is on the list. So for instance, if let's say you're writing a, a, like just like a regular nonfiction book, the fall, if you pay attention, because also one thing to remember is that the publishing world goes by cycles. And so certain books tend to be published at certain times. So it's not like random distribution. So books that have to do with anything related to like new year, new you tend to be published in like the second half of December or early or very early January, because they're trying to get that new year, new you media push and kind of the you know, store things. And, and people really do care about new year, new you like the, like I have the happier with Gretchen Rubin podcast and we see a spike of our listeners at new year's and on my website and in my book sales, I see a spike because people are like, the happiness project, it's a year long project and how to be happier. It's January. I feel like having a happier year. So, mm-hmm. and then, but then you see in the fall is often a time for like what they would call like a big nonfiction book. So, you know, if there's like a big biography of a political figure or a big political book or like a big work of, you know, foreign policy or something like that, they often will come up, they're trying to kind of set up for the Christmas season. So that's a really competitive time. Like if you, if you're selling on that list and then there's the fiction list, the nonfiction list, then there's, what what do they call it? Like self-help advice how to yeah melissa and miscellaneous advice how to yeah so all those lists are different and depending and then and then you can have a book that's just like a giant seller that is just dominating the list i remember when my book happier at home came out i was you know really wanted to stay on the list and julia child i think i think julia child had just died and so there was this huge surge of interest or maybe they had re-released a new edition of the joy of cooking or something but anyway there was this i and i'm like julia child is one of my spiritual masters so I begrudge nothing to Julia Child. But I was like, dang it, she's long gone from the scene. And yet she's taken a slot on this precious list. I wish Julia Child would like go below me. But there she was popping up in advance. And, you know, or something like, like a TV show will come out. And, like Marie Kondo's show premieres on Netflix. And now Marie Kondo's back on the list, even though she's been off the list for a while. And so all these things come to play. You can't control that. You can't control what's on the list. But what the numbers that they're selling are going to affect how many books, because the top, like the top 10, that's only the top 10 selling. And so if somebody's in there who's selling more than you, well, then you're going to get pushed down, even if the number that you sold would have meant that the previous week you would have made it onto the list. There's always people who are like, in a different week, I would have hit the list, but I was in this really super competitive list. And then it's a whole thing too, about like who publishes what date. So publishers will pay a lot of attention to like, are comparable books coming out on the same date as you? Because they want to see if that's going to affect the list. But I have to say, really, this affects very few writers. The fact is, it's extremely unusual to hit the New York Times bestseller list or the Wall Street Journal or the USA Today or any list. Not so unusual to hit an Amazon, like number one bestseller in a category because there's so many categories, but 
again, I wouldn't get over focused on this if you're if you're like because I mean like I know a thousand writers and very few of them have hit the New York Times bestseller list, even ones who have won Pulitzer prizes and 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 stuff like that. So wow, yeah, you know, it's just it's hard because it's a very certain kind of game, and as you said, there's like certain kinds of books that tend to do better or have it have it easier, and not everybody wants to write that kind of book. And, and so it's kind of like, you can think about it, but don't get overly preoccupied with it because it's not necessarily going to be the right metric to keep you on track to being, you know, building the reputation and voice that you want to build and put yeah. out to the world. Well, and, and for most of our, our clients and, and even, you know, this was the case with, with us. And it's, it's interesting, like you talk about our second book, you know, with Take the Stairs, I think our, our best week was like, 13,000 units or something, which is huge. That's huge. Which was, which was a big one. But then our second book, we had, we had a couple weeks at like 4,000 and missed and didn't hit the list. And I was sort of, I was sort of surprised by that, but I think that's the the key thing too. Like you say, it's not the ultimate metric. And and most of the people here, it's like a book is a vehicle to speaking engagements or to like selling their membership site or their coaching program or consulting or whatever. But so just to ask you specifically though, because you've had so many books stay on for so long, is there anything special that you think you're doing to do that? Or is it just kind of the combination of you know, great writing and then engaging with your audience. I mean, you do a great job with this on social and then, you know, like having the podcast and your email list. I mean, is there, is there anything more to that or is it just kind of like you build for a long time and you put out consistent content to keep your audience like interested? I mean, I wish I had some secret sauce, but it's like you say, it is a long game. Mm. Um, And I will often say to people who come to me for advice, I'll be like, do you just want to write one book or maybe two books? And this is like, because you wanted to support your speaking thing, because if you're doing that, then there's certain ways to do things that will help you. And then certain things you don't have to bother with. But if you really want to make a career as a writer and like you see yourself writing six books, eight books, and you want want to build and you want to build an audience and build an audience, then there are other things that you would want to do, which are going to be kind of a pain to set up and that are going to require kind of consistent maintenance, not huge maintenance. I think people would be surprised. Like if they see what I do, like I've built it up piece by piece over such a long period of time, I think it seems much more overwhelming that you would think than it actually is because I did it over so long. But like I started my blog in 2008, you know, and so I think you want to know what your aims are because your aims are different. That said, I would say that I believe that one of the most important things that a person can do is to create an email list. Mm -hmm. Email is the way to have a direct connection to your audience. Everyone else, even today, even still today, today, everyone else is in your way. Facebook's in your way. Instagram's in your way. And by the way, Instagram is Facebook. Twitter is in your way. Pinterest is in your way. A podcast is much more like an email because it's going right in there and there's so much broad distribution of podcasts. That's more like sending someone an email because you're giving it right to them but the thing that's great about email too is you know something about people. So you, if you have email, like I use ConvertKit for my email management, like I can do geo-targeting. So let's say that I'm coming to speak. I'm doing an event in Boston. I can geo-target people in Boston. So I'm not spamming my whole audience with a, mar- with a message that's not interesting to them. Whereas if you're on Twitter, you know, you got to do that. Like you can't be a specific. And Facebook and Instagram offer certain kinds of power and certain kinds of uh, nuance and like those are fantastic tools. I'm not knocking them as tools, but 
email is what you have, you control. You don't, no one's ever going to charge you for getting, well, I mean, your, your email provider is going to charge you and, and that does get quite expensive. Let me tell you, but it's a direct yeah. connection. And with something like pre-orders, you can start driving people to pre-orders early and you can say, you know, and you can kind of explain to people why it matters to you. Cause a lot of times people are like, Oh, now that I know that it would really help worry out if I did it. Mm. Okay. I'll go ahead and I'll go ahead and pre-order. I don't usually pre-order cause I don't like, you know, it's just like, then I, it's, it just feels like, why am I doing this? Because, but I get it. And so I always say to people, even if it's not clear to you what you're going to do with people's emails, just keep them in a, like a spreadsheet somewhere. Just keep them. And then at some point, I guarantee you, you will be like, dang it. I wish I had that email list. Oh boy, I do. I've been keeping that thing for two years. And then, and then you don't spam people. You GDPR compliant, of course. You always say to people, I'm emailing you because we've had some kind of contact before. Unsubscribe. I don't want to spam you. But a lot of times people are like, oh, I'm interested, you know, or, or I'll, I'll stay or stick around and see if I'm interested. And then, of course, it's about providing value to people so that they do want to stick around. But like one thing that I did, and then there's other things you could do. One thing I did, which people had told me, I, I mean, c- kind of conventional wisdom told me to do this, is have a quiz. Like a quiz, people love taking quizzes. And the problem is like, what's your quiz going to be? And then like, have you created and blah, blah, blah. Well, I had this book, The Four Tendencies. And I created a quiz and A, it was super challenging. It seems like it would be very easy to create a quiz, but like my thing, it's actually four categories. Are you an upholder, a questioner, obliger, a rebel? And you can go take this quiz at quiz.gretchenrubin.com if you want to. It's free. Two million people have taken the quiz now. Wow. Um, it's great. But the thing that is really true, so it was very, very hard, very, very burdensome. It went through many, many iterations, both because I had to like make the thinking as crisp as possible because it's easy to get somebody down to two tendencies. The problem is how do you have a question that will break out the four anyway, like melted my brain. And then you have to create it in a quiz form and it has to be pretty and it has to work and whatever. Give people a little report. It's not simple, but it really generated emails for me because I would give a report to people and they would be intrigued. And then I'd be like, if you want to learn more, you could sign up for my newsletter and people would be like, okay, I'll see what she has to do. And then I'm like, and then if you want to read the book, you can read the book. Or if you want to listen to the audiobook, here's a clip. Do you want to listen? Maybe you want to buy. So then I'm in a conversation and, and like, and at every point I'm like, I want to add value and I want to show people what I offer. Cause if they want to go deeper, they can go deeper. So something like a quiz, if you can do it is great because that's a way to pull people in. resources. Oh, here's a, like I did a, I love children's literature. So I made this list of my 81 favorite works of children's literature and young adult literature. And I, every once in a while I'm just like, Hey, if you love children's literature, here's a list or, Hey, it's Christmas time. If you need a list, here's a list. And people email me and I'm like, Hey, do you want to sign up for my newsletter? Or one thing that I have, I have like a regular newsletter with it's, you know, my version of what a lot of kind of author newsletters are. And then I have something called the moment of happiness newsletter. I love quotations and I've been collecting quotations for my whole life. And so I thought, well, I always am wanting to, and whenever I write a book, like my editor makes me cut out like nine tenths of the quotations because there's just way too many quotations. It's like really kind of gums up the works. And I thought, well, I'll have a way to put these out in the world. I'll do a moment of happiness newsletter. It is such a joy to me to pick the five that are going to go out that week. And like, I check it and it's like, oh, this is so fun for me. It's a way to share beautiful content about that created by other people. These are not my quotations. These are other people's quotations with links to books, which I hope people will be interested in instead of like, maybe they'll read. And I think it's, value. I love quotations. I'm constantly 
doing stuff, reading stuff like that. So it's fun for me. It's fun for my audience. It's a kind of value. And it's also a way to engage and to create goodwill, to show myself as someone who's willing to shine a spotlight on others, not just constantly promoting myself, which is super annoying, but shining a spotlight on other work that I admire. And, but it's a way to remind people like, hey, I'm here. Maybe you'd like to read my book at last. It's been 10 years. But, <laughs> you know, you're going on a long car trip. So guide by the audiobook, you know, or whatever. So, so a couple of things that you talked about there. So number one about the geo-targeting, we build a lot of the funnels for our clients and do like a yes. lot of back and, and stuff. And it's just complex. Yeah, it can be complex. And just for everybody to know, ConvertKit is the only tool that I know of that does that geo. It's like an amazing feature where they'll take the yeah. email address and do the geographic zip code. It's, it's one of the things that I love about them. And it's like, that's, I don't know if anyone else, you know, we use Infusionsoft and ClickFunnels and, you know, Kajabi and there's all, you know, we've used several of them, but ConvertKit's the only one that I know of that does that. And I've always thought that was so brilliant. And I, I it's interesting to hear you say, because if you're doing book signings or any type of public events, or, you know, like if you're a musician and you're like doing, you know, any type of touring, yeah. So I love that. I did want to ask you about the quiz. Was there like a tool that you finally used to help you like deliver it where you could, you know, actually get your hand around all that? There's a lot there. Okay. So here's a beautiful story of how social media is really valuable and making allies, not competitors is valuable. Okay. okay. So I used a company, a brilliant, amazing company with a fantastic team called Aperio. How did I hook up with Aperio? Okay. Back up, and I was writing about habit formation, and somehow online, or somehow, I connected with this guy near Ale, E-Y-A-L, who wrote a book called Hooked, which is all about how technology can kind of addict us. And so since I was writing a book about habit formation, this was quite interesting to me, like how we thought about it. And somehow, we started getting engaged with each other, because we were interested in the same subject, because I was out there putting my ideas out there, he was out there putting, and he self-published his book Hooked, First, and from that, it did so well, self-published that then he got a book deal um, ah. with a traditional publishing house. And he's a rebel. If you know the four tendencies, he's a rebel. He's one of my kind of uh, touched on rebels. And so then he had a conference. He had this habit formation conference at Stanford, and he's like, "Hey, you're writing about habit formation. Would you like to come present at the conference?" And I was like, "Well, near, yes, I would like to come present at your conference." So presented this, talking about the four tendencies, and this guy comes up to me and he's like, "This is amazing. I am absolutely fascinated by this." We think you should have a quiz. We can create that quiz for you and we'll do it for you pro bono because we're just so interested in what Whoa. you're doing. It was amazing. And like, they are like the breast, a perio. And the thing that was like the story about it that I like is that it's, it's, it's you can't predict where things are going to go. It's sort of about putting stuff out there and showing up and being interested and being engaged. And, and so I think eventually I probably would have gotten to the quiz just because it's such obviously a quiz thing. Like you're one of four categories, which one are you? I mean, it's like, you know, it's perfectly um, suited for that. It's, yeah. It's like exactly that kind of thing. And then also it's not like which friends character are you? It's because I argue that they really are distinct in a way that you can test. And that is very predictive and also very stable and whatever. So the quiz, like it was possible to create that quiz. I just had to figure, be creative enough and imaginative enough to figure out how to do it and then how to score it properly and everything. 
And so I did, I didn't have, cause I had them, I didn't like use a tool. I'm sure there are tools that you can use online that would help you create something like that. It's not something that I learned how to do. And, and mine did get quite complex by the end of it, like how we were weighting different things and stuff. But I think that there's probably much easier ways to do simpler quizzes that would be probably in this regard, just as effective. Yeah. Just from a, from a list building yes. you know, thing. People not, love it. People yeah. love it. Yeah. No, I, I was thinking scientifically like, you know, standard yeah. of, of research. Yeah. I think people are totally like cool with what kind of breakfast cereal are you? And they're just as likely to take that. And then they <laughs> take that's your opportunity to be like, Hey, I know you got a big kick out of my whimsical thing about breakfast cereal. Um, I also write, you know, in a more serious vein about blah, blah, blah. Maybe you'd be interested in checking out my newsletter. You know, it's just a touch, it's a touch point. And, you know, and obviously it's going to be something that is going to be reflecting of your voice, your, your values, your interests, yeah. because you want to be attracting the people who are going to, for whom your work will resonate. Um, you don't want to just like be random, but I was actually thinking about another quiz and it's fun to think about them. You know, it, it is really fun to think about them. So it, you know, it's not, yeah. it's not an art, it's, it might be difficult, but it's not boring. That's super fun. And that's what a, a good reinforcement there. Uh, another close friend of mine, she's actually in the summit is Sally Hogshead. And, and, you know, oh yeah, well, she's got 64 she's, categories or something, yeah, right? 40, 49. Yeah. Fascinating, 49 is it? Or, fascinating. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Fascinating. And yeah. Her, she built her whole career on this assessment that yeah. know, just like, she just goes deeper and deeper with it. And I want to get your, your thoughts on another thing. So you said, one thing I love is you kind of said this earlier, it's like a theme of just keep moving forward, just keep engaging, you know, do things like shine the spotlight because you never know what it's going to lead to. One of the other things that I feel like you do really well is you're in the media. Like, I mean, I feel like you get these mainstream major media hits pretty often. Is there any like secret to that? Or like, is that just a good publicist? Is that just because your books have done so well? Like, is that relationship building? Like, what's the media like philosophy? I think it's all those things. I do think that it gets a lot easier when you're at a certain level, because people will just give your book a look, you know, it's always like the breaking through. It's always like, is this, is this going to come to someone's attention? Are they going to give it a close look? One of the things, if you're being published with a traditional publisher, one of the kind of harsh truths, and I've been on both sides of this, is, you know, they have like their lead titles. And that means that in a certain, in a certain season, there are books that they like, are like, this is a book that's going to be big. And then there are books that they have uh, more modest expectations for. And then sometimes they're surprised in books that they didn't have big expectations for do better. Like, I think the Happiness Project started out with pretty modest expectations. And then as we were getting closer and closer, they kind of started doing more and more, you know, publishing more and more copies and stuff. Um, so I kind of switched in mid midstream. And so in terms of the the publishers, publicists and stuff like that and like the mainstream media gatekeepers, I mean some of it is like have they heard of you? And here's something interesting that I think is I think increasingly these big mainstream media hits maybe don't necessarily move books as much as you would think. Many people have said like, you can get on the Today Show. It doesn't sell as many books as you think, unless it's just the right book for just the right audience. Or you can be on the front cover of the New York Times book review. It doesn't sell as many books as you might think. 
a really big, like a big story in NPR, that really does move books. That seems to be like the thing that the, but those are those kinds of books for those kinds of readers. But the thing about the gatekeepers is the gatekeep, like once you do it, then it's easier to do it again because you're like the kind of person who's done the Today Show, you know, and now they look online and they can see everything that you've done. And there's more likely to be a newspaper article about you if you've been on TV and you're more likely to be on TV if there's been a newspaper article. So all these things build on each other. One thing I will say is about video. I had someone who is a book booker at one of the major networks tell me that they will not book an author if they cannot watch video of that person online Mm. because they're like, somebody could be a brilliant author and just be such bad television that it just doesn't work for me. I'm here to have good television and I just want to see it online. And like, could I have this person come in and talk to me? That's not realistic. I don't have time for that. Like, is that even possible? Like, no, I just want to look online and see, like see an interview with this person. I want to see this person talking. So one of the things I think, and I know it's like a huge pain if you don't automatically have this kind of clip, you really want, even if it's just something that you like did yourself and post, posted on YouTube, you need to have a clip where they can see how you speak, how you present yourself, how you present your ideas. Obviously, you want to sound smart and interesting and funny and all that because she said it was a deal breaker. That's interesting. But so that's funny that you say that because that's I, I feel like I hear the same thing and that's been true for us. The first time we were on national TV, this is probably 2012, it was like BookScan jumped a thousand that week beyond what we were averaging before. But then I think when we were back on national TV, it's like 2016 or something, just nothing, no clear delineation of any, any movement at, at all. But, you know, it counts for so many other things, credibility and speaking. And oh, well, that's exactly what I was going to say. There's many ways for something to succeed. And you could be on X morning television show and think, well, it didn't do anything in my book sales, but now I'm going to get that much more money for my next speaking engagement because they're like as seen on national television and people are like, well, that sounds cool. You know what I mean? All these things build. And I think that, you know, it's not that one thing is going to be transformative. I think it's rare that it's like one thing is just like blows up. We all know when it happens because you see that happen because it's so, you know, because that's what you see. You see when it, it goes huge or it goes viral or something, you know, like rockets to the top. Um, but there are a lot of things that that don't have that, but it's still really, really worthwhile. It, it's frustrating. I mean, one of the things, one of the reasons, like going back to the email list or something, it's very frustrating when you feel completely helpless to do anything about your fate. And mm-hmm. I had a book that did not succeed called 40 Ways to Look at JFK. And when your book is a huge flop, what they tell you is it did not find its audience. So that book did not <laughs> find its audience. And I had this feeling like there's nothing I can do. I can't make them put me on TV. I can't make them review this book in the newspaper. I can't get myself on a radio show. Like there's something I can do. And I'm like, I want to have things that I can do. Even if they don't work, I want to feel like there's something I can do to try Mm -hmm. to connect with people who are interested in my subject, because I think there are people out there. And how do I even let them know that the book exists? Because maybe they would be interested in it, but how are they going to hear about it? And this was way back when. I mean, now it's way noisier than it was, but there's so many more tools to reach people. And so these these outlets are fantastic. I, I spend a lot of time thinking about them. I do cultivate relationships, you know, but it's good to have things that you can join your own. 
One thing I will say, something that I have done for years and years and years, and I really started this, I will say, altruistically, but it turned out to be like really good karma in the kind of selfish way, is uh, for many, many years, I would post six days a week on my blog. Now I don't, I, now my, my, the way that I approach my blog has changed because blogging has changed, but for, for many, 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 many years, I post. So one of the things that I started doing then, and I still do now, is every Thursday, I will, or Tuesday, it used to be, I'll run an interview with somebody. It's an author, and it's like I have a standard set of questions that I ask them. And then I also say, you can, you can make up your own question. You can just pick and choose the ones you want. You can answer briefly. You can answer long, whatever you want. And what's lovely about this is that a lot of times people will be like, oh, I have this book or my good friend has this book, or I'm representing a person who has a book that I think you'd be really interested in. And it's a very easy way for me to be like, I would love to help that that person. I'm a writer. I know how it is. I would love to shine a spotlight on the work. It's something that I think is valuable and worthwhile, but there's tons of books that I think are interesting and worthwhile. And so I've created kind of a systematic way to, for people to feel like if I can be helpful to them, in, in, the, in the nicest possible way. And it's good to do things to build goodwill. Same thing like with social media and things like that. You don't want to spend all your time. I'm sure you talk about this all the time. You don't want to spend all the time talking about yourself, promoting yourself. And a lot of times people say, I don't want to use these tools because I don't want to just talk about myself all the time. Like you shouldn't talk about yourself all the time. Shine a spotlight in other people's work, books that you admire, television shows that you admire, movies that you admire, documentaries that you admire, performances that you admire. That like people are very interested in what other people find valuable. And so shine a spotlight on that. And then you're a good citizen of the universe. And also it makes you more valuable to someone and more interested in what you have to say about your own stuff. Yeah. Amen. I mean, I started our old podcast. uh, So, you know, this is the start of our new one, but our old podcast, I started it because every week I had an author friend saying, Hey, I have a book coming out. Can you help me promote it? And I was like, okay, well, why don't we just like turn this into a thing? Yeah. How you and I met. And then, you know, absolutely. And then it's like, there's certain people that we would connect to other podcasts because we ended up podcasters. And it's just like, it was the coolest thing ever. It was just like, everybody is winning from this thing. So you want to have allies, not competitors. Other people who are writing in your space are not your competitors. They are your team. And they're like with habits. I'm like, you're writing about habits. I'm writing about habits. We're all writing about habits. We're the habit team. It's not like if you win, I lose. You really like this whole idea of abundance and everything. It's really actually translates in real life. That love that. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I mean, that, that's going to be one of the pullout quotes from this for sure is that other people in your space are not your competitors. They are your team. That is just solid. So on that note, Gretchen, I mean, you are so fascinating. You're so smart. Like I could literally talk to you as long as you could stay here, but I know that we need to probably land the plane. Maybe we can, we can pick this up again sometime, but where do you want people to go? I mean, we'll put a link to, you mentioned quiz.gretchenrubin.com. So we'll put a link to that. Is that it, anything else, anywhere else you want people to go to, to, to connect with you? I have my podcast, my weekly podcast that I co-host with my sister, Elizabeth Kraft, who's like a, a big, fancy TV show runner in Hollywood. And that's called Happier with Gretchen Rubin. And every week we talk about how to be happier. Spoiler alert. It's very practical and concrete. And then I mentioned my, my blog, which I've kept my... Now I call it a site because a blog sounds so retro. But my site, GretchenRubin.com, like... I, I have so much material there about all different kinds of issues, happiness and habits and the four tendencies. And then I also have tons of resources, discussion guides. If you want to read an excerpt of a book or you want to listen to an excerpt, a clip of an audiobook, or 
you want a time tracker, you want a nutshell guide to the four tendencies, or I mean, I got I, the eighty-one favorite children's books. It's I got I got so many. Things. <laughs> GretchenRuby.com slash resources, or it's, you know, you can just go to the site and poke around. There's, there's a lot of stuff there. Yeah. I love it. So the last little thing, Gretchen, is if, if there's somebody out there watching right now and they are the aspiring writer, and I really resonate with that, that feeling of helplessness and knowing what that is like, of just like, I can't get anyone to publish my book. I'm not in control of this. And, you know, if there's somebody out there who's feeling a little bit of that helplessness, but they, you know, they really believe they have a message and they, they want to get it out there. What would you say to that person? You know, I would say the most important thing is to get it into a form, whatever form it is that you are choosing to use out into the world, because there's a big difference between the person who has a vision in their head and a person who has something that's been turned into something that other people can engage with. Because until it's out in the world, even if it's imperfect, you really can't move it forward. You can't learn from it. You can't build something from it. And I think a lot of people can get paralyzed thinking, I have to make all the right choices. I don't know, should it be MailChimp or ConvertKit? Should I put uh -huh. all my all my effort into Instagram or is it really going to be, you know, or is it like, or is this going to be Instagram story? I don't know. It's sort of like, you know, don't, it's all the things that we say, don't get a perfect, get it going. Don't let the perfect be the end of the enemy of the good. You know, action is the antidote for anxiety. Put it out in the world. One thing that's great about all this stuff that we're talking about is that you, you're con it's constantly changing anyway. You couldn't keep it the same, even if you wanted to. And so it would be very natural for it to evolve as your understanding of your own subject and your own voice evolve. And also as your understanding of the tools evolve, you can always switch. I wasn't on ConvertKit. I had to move my whole list over. You know, sometimes these things are a pain, but you can do them. You can rebuild your website if you decide it's wrong. You know, you can start a whole new podcast if you, if you want to start a whole new podcast. I mean, it's better to like get it out there and start working than it is to have it in your head and think like, if I can't get it, if I, if I don't know what to do, I just better wait because sometimes clarity comes through the doing and through the experiment and not, and I think even the creativity, I find that sometimes I'm worried that I'm going to use up my ideas or I'm going to run out and that I need to hold back ideas. But in fact, I find that the more I pour out, the faster and the faster and the faster I pour things out, the more everything fills up again. Love it. Well, thank you for your encouragement. Thank you for your wisdom. As always, thank you for your research and your insight into human behavior. We love that. We'll link up to all of that. Gretchen Rubin, ladies and gentlemen, you are awesome. I appreciate you so much. Oh, well, thanks. It was so much fun to talk to you. That's all we've got for this edition of the Influential Personal Brand Podcast. Hey, one thing that would really help both us and other new potential listeners is for you to rate this show and leave a comment in either iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you tune in to listen. Also, make sure to link up with us on social media and please just share, share, share this podcast with anyone who you think might enjoy it. Until next time, remember that building a business isn't nearly as valuable as building a reputation. Thank you.